Državljan D. Podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody. It's the 22nd of December 2022, but you're listening to this podcast of Citizen D on the 15th of March 2023. With us today is a true internet legend, uh, Jason Scott, an American archivist, archivist, historian of technology, filmmaker, performer, actor. Uh, Jason visited Slovenia in December 2022 and we caught up with him in the Computer Museum in Ljubljana. Welcome, Jason. Hey. Welcome to Ljubljana. Uh, thank you. First time here? Absolutely. Okay. First time in the city and the country. Okay. Uh, I'd been to Vienna a couple times in the past, but never outside. Okay. So this is, yeah, this is it. Hopped on a train. Six hours later, here I am. Uh, it, it's worth mentioning that this podcast is recorded live and in person. Uh, so uh, since I don't know if we recorded... Uh, an in-person session in 2022. I don't think we recorded one in 2021. Everything was done online, so this is this is going to be slightly different than uh, than our usual our usual spiel. Yeah, I'm doing this right after taking a wonderful tour of this computer museum. They just walked me through all the floors. This place is amazing. They have so many pieces of unique history. What blows me away is I've I've been to a lot of computer historical museums and usually they have one or two crown jewels. I like the fact that they have here a collection of like, well, this is the first computer of this sort to show up here in this country or here is the country that did the mail for the internet. That's really amazing. Uh, so they told me they've been at it for 20 years and it shows there's some really unique pieces. And we are in a basement recording studio <laughs> at the computer museum before I go and talk even more upstairs. Uh, there you go. So so the first question uh, should be pretty obvious or it's pretty obvious what the discussion is going to be about here and, and upstairs. And I want to I wanna open up with a, with a philosophical question. Uh, so here goes, why would a person try to archive the internet? Okay, so it helps to know that I work full-time for a place called the Internet Archive, archive.org, which is the Wayback Machine, uh, which is the place where all the old websites can be viewed. And the story of how that happened, I'll make very short, uh, was that a, a, a guy made some money uh, making a search engine back in 1991 before they were hot, And he sold the company for a few million dollars. And then he was like, oh, what, what else do I want to do? And he created a company that did, I guess the way you could call it is it's almost like a ratings system or a um, kind of a, you know, you would pay the money and be able to say, how's my website doing? Mm -hmm. And it would go, oh, you are the 155th most viewed website involving, you know, vintage cars. And this was all in 1994, 1995. So to be able to do this, they were browsing the whole internet and going through and assessing them and keeping copies of what they saw to compare it. And one day he sells the company to Amazon for $200 million dollars in Amazon stock in 1996. And uh, that's a lot of money. That pretty much solves it. And what he thought to himself was, I get to be a librarian now. You know, I'm not going to become a venture capitalist. I'm not going to buy an island that nobody's allowed on. I'm, I'm going to 
I'm going to get into books and web pages. And, and his name is, is Brewster Kale, and he's considered a internet legend. And he did all this in 1996, 1997. <clears throat> and then f- for the next 25 years, it has been... Why not try this? What about that? Has anyone done this? No, let's do it. And one of the first projects was about five years in, he said, people should be able to look at those old websites. And so let's make a machine that'll do it. We'll call it the Wayback Machine. And you can connect to it. Type in domain names and look at what they were. And it turned out that was killer. It turned out that um, the question you're asking gets answered a million times a day because people want to know what was there before. Sometimes they want proof that a politician claimed something or a company claimed they did something and then quietly removed it. Sometimes people just want to see the progress of a famous company. If you look at like initial what Google looks like or what Twitter looks like and then look at it years later. So it turned out it had a million uses, one for every person connecting. So that, at this point, it's one of the most popular places on the internet. And just doing that's a huge job, but everything else that's happened at the Internet Archive has followed that philosophy of, like, what, what, what would be so bad about having a bunch of old Grateful Dead music up? Why don't we put up old movies from the government? What if we played old software? What if we, you know, on and on and on? So... The question kept getting answered by the fact that if you take away um, all of the belief that the internet is this permanent, you know, you say one stupid thing when you're 16 years old and you're going to be 90 years old and they're going to be able to look it up. That is so not true. So many websites disappear. No app, you know, no record of them existing. The domains are gone. The records are gone. So if you don't have anybody with a mission to say, okay, I'm going to preserve it, make it playable as best we can, we find it just fades away after like sometimes as short as six or 12 months, a website disappears or takes things down. Um, For the American Supreme Court, which you would think would be pretty big, people were finding that 25% of all the links weren't working after five years in the you know, Supreme Court findings. So people are using the web for citation, they're using it for reference, but it's undependable, it keeps disappearing. And uh, companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter, and so on, are really focused on what I'll call the nightmarish present, a constant, what's new? You know, if somebody, uh, you know, in 2022, we had people throw, you know, food at paintings. If you look up the name of that painting, that's going to be the first match because they're so focused on what happened five minutes ago. You don't get a beautiful reference of like, here's all the things you need to know about the fine history of this. It's like, here's what it's like a gossiping neighbor Mm. and a website that focuses on old websites lets you go back and say, oh yeah, I used to go there. I was there the day they announced this. Here's a record of it. Sometimes people lose their old websites and we bring it back. Um, sometimes we get people who 
go back and find something they did as teenagers mm-hmm. and then they find their old stories and stuff mm-hmm. and um it used to be a bigger deal it's not as much now that like people would make these testimonial websites to stars and celebrities and figures they loved so you can imagine like a 30 something person being like, oh my God, they found my Taylor Swift website. <laughs> um, so it, it it plays so many parts. And um, the amount of times that the Wayback Machine and the internet history come flying into the front pages. Uh, at the time that we're doing this in America, a uh, legislator just got elected. And it's looking like, we'll see what's happening it's looking like he made up a lot of his history. Mm. Like he ran for this office, he barely won, but he claimed he had gone to this school and he had run this business and and there's like very little record of it. And so there's a little fight going on. And in the middle of it, he completely deleted his website and deleted all of his records, mm. except they're on the Wayback Machine. Mm. So without it, you're letting people kind of dictate what wins. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Do we miss things? All the time. We grab anywhere up to 100 um, billion URLs a month, and we're still behind. The internet is huge. Okay. But so that would be my next question. Is there a thought process that your, your team or you go through as you decide on what to archive and what not? Do you go, oh, this is like literally crap and we're not gonna... We're not going to bother with this. We're going to pay attention to some specific systems, topics, yeah. uh, subjects. Less than you would think. Um, like there is a class of websites whose purpose is to be constantly refreshing itself spam to send you to for pay adult or purchase sites or mobile cards. So every time you visit that website, it gives you a new random look. Um, these websites will take uh, news stories from a more prominent place like The Verge or Yahoo News, run it twice through translation software, pop it up, put up two or three random photos, and then link you to apps, ads, crypto, and, and, and so on. We don't tend to archive very much of those just because they'll just eat up our disk space. Mm-hmm. We probably have a few. Um, I I archive more spam than I would really want to, but, you know, we do have those traps, we call them. Mm -hmm. On the whole, um, the problem is you're worried about sites that have a short lifespan. Mm -hmm. uh, Or you have sites that are playing a much more important part in the world, and you want to make sure they go. So, a few years ago, people who aren't me at the Internet Archive created something they called it the keep links blue project and one of them was to ally with wikipedia so if in wikipedia you edit a web page and you link to a website for citation or reference Mm -hmm. our machine notices that takes a copy immediately at the moment that it was cited and stores it Mm -hmm. there's a bot that sits on wikipedia that if it notices that no longer works, it rewrites it and says, archived at the Internet Archive. So citation links don't die like they used to on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. We used to grab things like any time, any amount of people linked to somewhere from Twitter with the idea being, well, that's some human cultural 
thing going on. You know, everybody suddenly links to a funny article, we'll archive it. Or somebody links to an embarrassing thing, we'll, we'll archive it. Um, it. There's a lot of speculative ones, you know, like go through every domain you can find, try to see what news stories are linked. Um, uh, it actually gets scary. I'm sure at some point we'll mention a number. And the number is the archive, as of this interview, takes in about 75 terabytes of new data a day. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, millions of websites, radio shows, television, front pages of a lot of websites, uh, along with scanned books, digitized LPs, uh, and so on. We pull in about 11,000 hours of radio a day. We pull in almost every podcast, like pretty much every podcast that has any distribution will take a copy. We don't make them available as easily because we don't want people to feel they're competing with us. Mm -hmm. We recognize that there's a class of material on the internet that's not just there to be there. It's somebody's business. Mm -hmm. And we're keeping a record so that in the future it might become available, but we'll keep it not as easy to find or uh, you have to request it, but we're doing it in trust of a future. And um, we're somewhere north of 100 petabytes Mm -hmm. as of this writing which is you know one um million gigabytes so it's it's a lot Mm. um and and again i'm jumping ahead with questions here but you know people will go well don't you understand this is impossible and i'm like oh yeah oh yeah oh no 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 um uh there's a the one of the original creators of electronic mail programs his name was eric allman he created a program called send mail used to be the most popular program and it was really complicated and by the mid-2000s he said uh um send mail was a sledgehammer designed to kill a fly that turned out to be an elephant in the distance Mm. And that's what this has been. I mean, I definitely sometimes hear in meetings where we're like, what have we signed on to? <laughs> you know, oh my God. Um, like right now we're struggling for as various values of struggling with Twitch streams. Okay. Because super fans care about their anime character or their really trash talking uh, gamer doing these five-hour streams, playing Call of Duty, and the the Twitch, by default, will get rid of them after two weeks if you mm-hmm. don't uh, signify they're important. And so these heroes come in and say, well, we got to protect this. It's five hours of a guy cursing at a video game. And so we get, you know, tens of thousands of hours being uploaded, and we're like, I don't know if we need this as much. Maybe a few representative ones... You know, and and trying to play that game, um, you know, the idea of saving history is so, um, like, it fills you with such patriotism or a sense of being part of humanity. You know, when when I work with somebody who's like, I I got a copy of this. It's the only one. Do you want it? And I go, yeah, I'll take it. They're like, hooray, it's saved forever. Like, that fills you with a kind of fervor that can then correlate to, I'm going to save everything. And I'm like, there's no room. 
Uh, so that, anyway, that okay. was that was a good first answer, huh? <laughs> is is like you've mentioned a bunch of things or a bunch of uh, artifacts that you're that you're archiving. What's the let's say what's the what's the hardest to archive artifact? Is it is it software? Is it is it uh, yeah five hour Twitch streams? Is it the hardest? The hardest thing to archive are the servers that are serving network-based client server things. Okay. So we have no record of any of the code that makes Twitter work. We don't have access to all of the internal games that Facebook made that, uh, you know, Zenga, when they were doing all their games, Farmville, you know, we can't make Farmville live again. Mm. We can play you video of Farmville being played. Mm -hmm. You can get records of how people played Farmville, but then you're literally doing, you know, like military reenactments. You know, you're basically going to have to like look at it, make your own version, think you've got it. And then somebody who knows it will come in and go, where's this? What's this? Those are really hard. Um, there are also websites going back even to the 90s that are also where there was internal programming that did all the real work. So when you were on the website and you were clicking on things, nothing was local. So you can't experience that again directly. Um, you, you have all of these services that by their very definition don't want to make themselves copyable. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of websites, they give you everything and then your browser generates it. Mm -hmm. Uh, those are easier. So it's a constant problem because, um, especially again, you know, people have very different opinions about games. Mm -hmm. Games are a really, they're, they're not a sliver, I want to say, but in terms of saving digital history, mm -hmm. they sell themselves like if it's a good game, you can put somebody, you can put a child who's 12 on a well-designed game from 1982, which was created decades before they were born. And it is great. It is fascinating. All the, all the graphics quality melts away. The child loves the game. Less so if you preserve old elevator steering software from like the 1980s or whatever. Um, so games, people get focused on games, but games are a really good metaphor for what's happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like Electronic Arts and Ubisoft set up these servers that drive these games and the games you get at home can't play without those servers. And then randomly, anywhere as short as 18 months, they go, yeah, we're shutting down these servers. There is, okay, so when I said I wasn't big on a lot of Twitch streams, somebody did, I was doing a walk through our user uploads and I was looking for really big items. I am by that, but really big, I mean bigger than 100 gigabytes. And somebody had uploaded an entire day of streams where it was the last day that I think it was... Halo? Yeah, Halo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Halo 360 was going to work. The last three players? Or... And it's all the players on that last day reminiscing and playing and being there when the server stops working at midnight. Yeah. Like, okay, all right, I see the pitch. Now, 
But you can drive yourself crazy as an archivist trying to worry about these contingencies, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the metaphor I tell is uh, I, I met the creator of the, uh, the one of the Commodore computers, mm -hmm. uh, not the, the 128. He did a lot of work. His name's Bill Hurd, B-I-L-H-E-R-D, Bill Hurd. Great guy, lives in New Jersey, really friendly, knows his stuff. And he brought prototypes to a computer show that I was at. And I was taking lots of photos. So I took photos of him holding his prototype. And a month and a half later, he ripped his fourth ring finger off in a machine while doing some woodworking. Mm -hmm. And he had been a emergency technician. Uh, so he wasn't like freaked out. He was just like, things happen. <laughs> And, you know, he lost that finger. But I realized that I was archiving the prototype, but I had actually archived his finger because I have one of the last photos of his finger before it disappeared. So you never know, like, what's valuable. And, you know, so much digital stuff is so cheap right now yeah. uh, to, to be able to, you know, if you record um, audio... You can record 24 hours and, and turn it into a you know, few gigabytes and, you know, it doesn't hurt much. But it hurts a lot to do 24 hours of video. Like, mm -hmm. it's a lot of space. But all of it is contingent on we don't mind constantly keeping track of these spinning pieces of metal or very um, uh, unpredictable SSD technology. And... Honestly, I tell people I wouldn't trust anything more than three years. Like, sure, keep it around, but you better move it out if you really care about it. Mm -hmm. um, I have certainly rescued data off of 40-year-old videotapes and 40-year-old floppy disks, but I'm, I'm gripping my seat handle very, very tight watching it do it like it's it can be really nerve-wracking so, so what's the what's the technology for for archives right so so you have i i worked previously or i served on the on the board of, of public television and one of the discussions we've had uh, uh in terms of restoring or keeping the the, the recordings on on the on the on the public uh, adver, uh, public uh, broadcaster network was exactly, you know, okay, we have all these magnetic tapes that are literally, literally like rotting away in a, in a storage room, and now we have to copy it onto something. Yeah. And what's, what's the technology? Is it, is it cloud? Is it SSD? Is it... Uh... Uh, so you get into a religious war, right? Okay. You just do, because people are like, what's the best thing to do? And the first... The line that I said years ago that I still think applies is life is a lossy format. We lose things all the time. And it's weird. Like you'll have somebody who runs an important, you know, newspaper or magazine and he's the editor. You think this guy poured his life into this. This is why he went through two wives and his kids don't talk to him. And even he won't have every issue of the paper he put out. Mm -hmm. Right? That's... That's what we do. We, 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 we get things out and then we don't bring it back. Or, or maybe you have somebody who did radio and they did all these amazing shows, but through time and neglect or mistake or everything else, 
you know, maybe only a handful survive. So we do this all the time, and it's and getting emotionally uh, into a spiral about it to me is just a, a um, extension of existential dread of like what will be here when I'm gone. If I'm seeing things disappearing now, what am I even leaving behind? What's even? Why am I even here? What am I? You know, you can really work yourself up into a lather. Mm. So one of the so there's slogans and there's approaches. So the Internet Archive has two that it has built up. Um, one of which came from a co-founder, but I think it came from somebody before then. And the other one is a different group. So the first one is access drives preservation. The more you give people access, the more we notice the gaps and somebody says, oh, I have another one of those. Or, oh yeah, this is starting to go bad. We should think about that. We should preserve that. As opposed to locking it into a room for literally 20 years and then coming back and finding out the gears don't even turn and there's no record of a, of a thing. So. The archive works to put everything online as fast as possible. We get yelled at occasionally by people who are like, don't put that up. And we go, okay, fine. But then there's so many other thousands of things, millions of things really, where people thank us that they were trying to figure out how something worked and we had an old manual or um, we have a lot of old time radio that has been saved by many groups where they have carefully taken old tapes and put them into digital form and you know you can argue to an audiophile about what's best but right now you know on a networked computer anywhere in the world i can have you playing a 1939 radio drama in about 20 seconds that's amazing um and that provides a platform for other people to learn how great these radio dramas are and it also drives people who go hey i noticed you're missing some radio dramas you know my dad used to record those do you want them? We get that more than you would believe. Like people who are like, um, I just took donation of 75 boxes of tapes from two brothers who are gone from a guy who knew somebody who was clearing out their house who wanted the radio equipment because it was nice old radio equipment, but didn't care much about these tapes. And what these guys were doing is they were sitting on satellite bands and recording like Iranian state media during the 1979 hostage crisis and weird Russian and uh, Eastern European behind the Iron Curtain news recordings way back in like the early 70s that normally wouldn't go anywhere. And I'm like, okay, let's take them. So those would have just sat in a back room. The other one that we follow, which um, is a group and it's an outlook. So I don't want to diminish. This is a real group, working group that came up with this. And it's called LOCKS-S and it stands for Lots of Copies Keeps Stuff Stuff. Lots of Copies Keeps Stuff Safe. It's a real tongue twister. Mm. It basically says, try to get it on as many drives as possible. Try to like put it on uh, uh Hard drives and cloud, you know, I, I was a big cloud critic back when it first started to get used this new modern way. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when the cloud was a warning, which is just crazy to me that they rebranded it as amazing. Um, I don't like any marketing that tries to make their audience um, dumb. Uh, if I have a service and I'm like, leave your bags outside and they'll be at your destination when you're done. It sounds interesting, 
but I really feel like I should be telling you how we're going to transport it and like what your guarantees are and mm. like be, you know, be involved in the process, even if sure. you're not lifting them. And so many computer services are like, give us 50 bucks and never think about it again. And you're like, really? How many machines are these on? <laughs> Who's running this? Are you keeping this safe? What's your security? And they're like, oh, so many questions. Just look how cheap we are. <laughs> and, and so... Um, I was impressed by a Google engineer, oh, this is like back in well, at least 15, 20 years ago, who told me that they were always trying to keep five copies in three geographic locations. Like, mm -hmm. that's a good policy. It's expensive, but it's annoying. Um, I do believe that um, for certain kinds of things, and this may just be me getting older, paper is not so bad. Like... There's stuff that's like, when I talk to individuals as opposed to institutions, there's usually a personal set of data that for you is irreplaceable and unreproducible. So, you know, the photos, the, 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 the scratchy photo of you and your first girlfriend in a photo booth from 15, 20 years ago. Um, a cassette tape of recording your firstborn babbling into a microphone. Um, photographs of your parents that they didn't stop, so they're actually smiling and they never smile and now they're gone. And each of these represents like things that are of meaning to you. Mm. And we can debate whether they have meaning beyond that, but, but to you they're important. And I feel like those are the crown jewels that need multiple copies so that you've gotten them scanned, Maybe you've taken photos of them, so even though the photos fade, you still have the additional photos. Maybe digital copies in multiple places, because that matters to you. Mm. But if you're talking about like your music collection, especially in the modern era, I'm like, don't worry. BTS music is now with us forever. <laughs> no problem. You do not need to take on the mantle of ensuring that... 13 gigabytes of BTS, uh, uh, you know, artifacts are going to be preserved forever. <laughs> but like, you know, your college transcripts or the draft of your first novel that you didn't put out or, or letters that you wrote to home uh, or letters your family wrote to you, eh, it might be worth it to print it out and put it in a box called Letters. Uh, it might be worth it to put it on multiple services. So even when the services die, you say, mm. and regarding access drives preservation, sharing them, you know, maybe not necessarily intimate items, but being able to like have a conversation with folks and say, oh man, my dad, here's what he was like, but I got this one picture of him. And there's a whole feeling there and you've passed it on to a set of people and it lives on in their minds. And, you know, mm. that's important. And then also maybe there's a recognition. Oh, you know, your father was one of the last of, you know, the great rockers, the, the, the gang that used to, you know, really be crazy here in the late 1980s. Tell us more about your dad. And, and the next thing you know, you know, you're... You're sitting tearfully in row three of a documentary festival <laughs> with a blurry picture of you and your father, you know, while somebody talks about it. 
As I get older, I get more philosophical about it because applying unrealistic views to like what the permanence of digital data is, is its big downfall. We promise it as, oh, you wrote it on a CD-ROM, that CD-ROM will last a hundred years and it will be preserved forever. And we have now discovered, no, especially CDRs, which are um, organic material attached to a plastic disc that has been lightly burned by a laser, mm -hmm. which is a picture of digital data. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's really something. And it's not going to last. Um, I'm currently involved in a project to rescue some 25-year-old games. Mm. And some of them are going to be a little bit of a party trying to get those things running. I mean, it's it stuff goes quick. Um, yeah, you get surprises. You get stuff from 50 years ago, and you can't believe how good it sounds. And then other times you're like, I recorded this three years ago, and it sounds absolutely awful. I just listened to um, Rick Rubin, who worked on the Beastie Boys, mm -hmm. talking about the importance of a raw mix, a rough mix versus the real mix. Okay. Because to their audiophile ears, they can hear on the master tapes a year later that the sound has faded a little bit. So you want to get it, you know, in the first week or two after you cut it, get it out there, get it recorded, because literally even a year makes a difference on professional mm. quality tape. Um, so yeah, mm. it, it's 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 archiving is a fundamental human aspect, okay. right? Okay. Preserving our memories, yep. remembering our stories, and we have sometimes done really good. And sometimes, I mean, you know, a folklorist will be able to tell you, oh, yeah, you know, the chicken head of, you know, Russia. Yeah, that's like 19 stories glommed together and crushed. And it was only ever finished because one guy in Germany printed it in 1590 and it became known as that story. And you go, wow, I don't know how we remember yeah. anything, you that's know. True. So, so I just realized that this podcast is sort of an intro into our fireside chat, which will be recorded, obviously, and added uh, in the description. So I don't want to, I don't want to just re uh, rehash the the conversation that we're going to have. But one more final, I want to uh, touch upon one final subject. You're also a, a documentary maker. Yes. Uh, and do you think that? How do you think that that uh, uh, that digital historians in a way are being let's say represented in the let's say the mainstream media you just had your your photo taken for a for a right. local newspaper i'll probably write an article accompanying it mm -hmm. and and the guy was like oh we need to put you in this sci-fi lightning something something um, uh, situation do you think that this uh, you're also wearing a cool jacket i'll, yeah. I'll include a, a photo of the jacket in the in the description yep do you think that helps like recognizing uh, the importance of of your work or do you think that that it makes you look sort of like oh here are the like serious historians and he's this guy in a yeah. sure yeah, so the problem is is that I came up through a performing arts background. I learned mass media. 
at Emerson College. I went to school at the same time as the, the Wachowski siblings and Bill Burr. We were all in the same school, although nice. I didn't hang out with any of them. Okay. Uh, I don't want to pretend that we, we were buddies, but I found out later. Paul Thomas Anderson as well. But they oh, all left early. They all left Emerson early or moved to the West Coast. Okay. And I stayed around. But I think that that's my age, right? So I'm at the age of these folks. Okay. And I learned how to do animation and movie making and television and presenting and mixing and tape editing with an actual razor. And, and um, uh, I had a dream of becoming like a filmmaker. And um, I didn't... I soon realized I didn't want to go through the the film industry. I thought it was just a grindhouse. I didn't want to do it. So I ended up going into computers and video games, um, then more computers. And yet, at some point, I started to recount my days of youth on the internet. So I would I made a site called textfiles.com that were just collections of old bulletin board system data, old vintage computer printouts, and so on. And it didn't take long before I figured out, well, these are the bones. Like, we can have piles and piles of bones and go, yep, they said this. But we don't know what was driving them. We don't know anything about their emotions. We don't know what circumstances they were in. Somebody should tell that story. And by about 2000, so in America, BBSs are 1978 till about 1995. So I was like, man, it's 2000. Nobody's going to tell the story. And by the time they realize they should tell the story, they're all going to be dead. And so I guess I better do it. So I set off into documentary filmmaking simply because I was concerned that this history wasn't going to be saved. So I was calling up people and yeah, more than one of them thought that it was a prank. Like, nobody wants to talk to me about this. Who put you up to this? Was it Steven? Was it Paul? And when I would show them all the work I had done up to that point, all the interviews, they'd go, well, if one, I always remember this. He said, well, if this is a prank. I got to fall for it because this is way too much work. And I was like, wow, what do you guys do to each other? But when I would interview them, out would come these hours of stories of like, you know, love affairs and, 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 and moments of pride and fear and accomplishment that were just not in the software. The hmm. software is like, you know, um, okay, here's a new version of a BBS. But then I would talk to somebody who was like, yeah, I was at another guy's throat. You know, we were both coming out with versions one after another, and here's what was doing it. So I became very much about like oral history being part of parcel of technological history. Hmm. And eventually, my performing arts background means that not only were my speeches to some level informative, I was memorable because I don't have stage fright. I love being in front of crowds. <clears throat> I can talk to people, obviously. For anybody uh, listening, clearly I don't have a problem talking. And so I was really well positioned to be a spokesperson for why archiving and um, uh, history of technology and a lot of other things is important and mm -hmm. giving examples. Mm. Um, I've been at it for about 25 years, uh, maybe getting up on 30 now. And one thing I became very cognizant, very aware of was 
there was a danger that people who are fans of mine, who think I'm fun and do all these things, think, um, here's the person, right? This is the person. This is the world expert we are dealing with. <clears throat> In fact, uh, I remember I saw the, the, they had made an ad for this talk I'm giving tonight. And oh, the, they used a term. It was like the foremost expert, you know, the world expert in Internet history. And that is fundamentally not true. <laughs> that is so not true. I became really good at BBS history for a while. Okay. I have learned a lot about the commercial side of a lot of companies so that in a room I can beat out most people if they cover the model number and have me go, oh yeah, that's an MX-60. Oh yeah, that's a PS1. But there are people out there who are doing, you know, backbreaking work researching reams of paper and piles of books and citations to ask questions and follow well-established routines and how to perceive history, ethical guidelines, um, questioning approaches to do this that they've been trained in. Mm. And that's not me. So I have... I have been, in the last few years at least, really leaning into saying, look, I'm the clown, I'm the ringmaster outside the tent who's going to get you interested in this. And then you're going to meet a lot of people and you're going to go, oh, that Jason guy was an idiot. Like, treat me like I'm a television version of a computer historian. Hmm. I'm good for the camera. I obviously have a clear voice. I'm very much excited about my subject. I absolutely love it. It's not fake. I love computer history. I love all the stuff. Nothing makes me happier than going into a, a locker or a um, location and finding, you know, 500 piles of whatever. But I'm the introduction. Mm. And people who are like, yeah, but is he really telling the story of, you know... Um, like there's a there's a wonderful computer historian named Lane Nooney who's coming out with a book on the Apple II, and she just did amazing work, where she would see what was a well what Americans would call a hoary old chestnut, which was like a well worn story, and uh, I don't want to we don't have the time to fully go into the story so i'll just say the story is that this person found out this person swindled him and he cried and she went where is this from why is this here people had been repeating this i can't i can't stress hundreds of times it's in dozens of books mm -hmm. but she took the time and said find me the citation <clears throat> it turns out Somebody wrote a book about a different company that the first person had been a part of and misquoted how much that person had been paid. Mm. And then the a friend of both of these people told the second one, whoa, I thought you were paid $300. It looks like they were paid $2,500. Mm. And he was heartbroken about this. 
And so the story got out that he was heartbroken. And the first guy was never really big on interpersonal relationships. So it's clear that he never cared about correcting the misunderstanding. So that story just followed forever. Hmm. She, you know, Elaine Nooney is an example of the kind of person doing the real work. Uh, Kevin Driscoll doing amazing work on Minitel or on how modems worked. Or, um, you know, uh, Tom Standage in the UK who does these books that are my favorite. I interviewed him for a documentary I ended up not making. And I consider it a success because I just got to spend 25 minutes with him (laughs) in London just being like, I love you so much. Oh, my God. He has done these books on the Mechanical Turk, the chess playing robot, uh, a history of the world in five, six different drinks. You know, like these are very well-researched narratives that give you an insight. And I'm not doing that. Um, so I love I love being someone's introduction. I love being the weird scientist on TV that makes you realize that there's more than three forms of matter and that there are, you know, ways to mix chemicals that are really amazing and that when somebody does this, they have to do it in a room that's super clean. And then you go off and you learn. So that's kind of where I am. Um, and, I, you know, if that's all I leave, if all I leave, and I, I know I have already done this, that there are dozens of people who have actually gotten degrees because they thought I was such an amusing archivist, then then that's all I need. That's all I want. So consider me, you know, the the the, the fanfare at the beginning, the guy going step right up. Step right up. Uh, you know, computer history is amazing. It's better than you ever thought. Let's see if we can do that with a really good... Like, step right up. Come on in. Come on on and see, you know, computer history the way it was meant to be. Come on down to this museum and see history before your very eye. You know, like that's, that's, I think, you know, if that's my role, I'm very happy with it. But let's not pretend... Um, Let's not pretend that every time we discover something new and wonderful in computer history, it's because Jason's down in the basement with his his, his glasses on going through a microfilm recorder. Okay, uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna end on on this note. Uh, so uh, I'm just gonna say, step right up, uh, listen or watch the the fireside chat we are about to do. We don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, maybe it will go yeah somewhere different than we expected. But uh, thank you, Jason, for for dropping by, for for taking the time uh, for us. And uh, yeah, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Thank you. And thank you very much.